AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for June 29, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined online by Jim Clausing. Welcome, Jim. Hey, how's it going? Doing well, thanks. And uh, I understand you're all dressed up ready for the holiday coming up. Absolutely. <laughs> all right, very good. Uh, we have joining us here, Joe Harton. Welcome, Hi, Joe. Glad to have you back. And Michael Singer. Welcome, Hello, Michael. Brian. Glad to be here. All right, I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, we're going to go first to you, Jim. And, uh, you know, I guess we wouldn't have a program, a complete program, if we didn't have some sort of an arbitrary execution bug. So give us the scoop. Yeah, this is one that uh, came to my attention uh, a couple days ago. Uh, some researchers at Cisco discovered a vulnerability in LibArchive. Uh, LibArchive was actually originally developed in about 2004 for FreeBSD. It was first released in FreeBSD 5.3, but has since uh, been picked up by a number of other packages. It's widely used in FreeBSD, NetBSD, but it's also been picked up in uh, a number of Linux distributions as well, mm -hmm. in things like the Nautilus file browser, for those of you who use um, you know, Debian or Ubuntu, the file browser that lets you, you know, graphically click into different file systems, look mm -hmm. at the folders and so forth. It's also used in a, a number of other packages that are used to open up various archive formats, you know, tar and CPIO and that kind of thing. There are a number of packages out there designed to handle a lot of them, you know, to open all your zip files and your tar archives and your CPIO archives. And a number of those use libarchive as well. The Linux distros and, and FreeBSD and NetBSD will be or have already uh, pushed out updates. But this is another one of those kind of odd ones where you, know, you don't normally think about the the programs that open up your archives mm -hmm. as being a you know a potential target of attack this potentially could have the mm -hmm. there were actually three different vulnerabilities that the that the guys at Cisco discussed the, one of them was handling 7zip format files be on the lookout for updates to your libarchive right. uh, libraries and if you've used it in any uh, utilities that you've statically compiled, you'll need to recompile those. Mm -hmm. So there are perhaps a, a couple of areas of where we could dig into this just a little bit further. I think, first of all, you know, kind of recognizing that I think any, any uh, program or any code that basically parses data is potentially subject to some sort of, uh, you know, remote code execution or an arbitrary code execution bug, assuming the vulnerability is there. I mean, we have to sort of assume the vulnerability is there, and it's really a matter of knowing about it. 
and uh, you know, kind of considering that as a part of designs of systems, that is, do you have control of the data that's that's being parsed? And I, I assume in this case, this is a case where you'd have to be given a maliciously crafted archive file as opposed to uh, being concerned about data that's within a file that you archived. Is that right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Is it, it's it's buffer overflows or heap overflows. Right. In the parsing, so yeah, it would require a maliciously crafted archive. Mm -hmm. Well, it just shows you too that the use of shared libraries like this is sort of like a distribution channel mm -hmm. that you don't normally think of. That you know, developers all share libraries. Mm -hmm. So a corrupted library is a good way to get at a lot of different pieces of code. Yep. So yep. it's it's a little out of the box. Well, that's very good. That was actually the, the, the next point I was going to, maybe a little bit of a variation on your point, is that if you're using a, a basically a, a distribution channel or a package, like if you have a Linux distribution and this is part of that, then you would naturally be getting the updates as a part of that distribution, which is a good thing. So the, right. you automatically get the updates as the patches come out. But if you go directly to the source code repository that's available, you really have to be paying attention to that source code repository and any updates that come about because you, in that case, you're on your own. Right. And you really have to be considering what the you know, patch lifecycle maintenance is gonna be for anything that where you go to an independent path. Yeah. And, um, a, and perhaps an extension on that, this is a case where it's a vulnerability, but you also need to consider, is there something that could be deliberately corrupting that distribution and uh, how would you protect yourself from that? Yeah, well, a lot of times it's stuff that's being copied from one branch to another or mm -hmm. from one subcomponent to another. So it's not, you know, like you said, the ideal case is where you're going direct, mm -hmm. you're getting public updates. But when you're in this sort of uh, sharing a library, sharing a code snippets, you know, you kind of open the door to this sort of thing where you're using, you know, less than the latest version right. of things. We see the same thing with Flash and you know other shared components. So it's mm -hmm. yeah. But on the other hand, it's you're. I think you're better off using a library, a shared library that is getting some attention than trying to write your own one-off for every format that comes along. One last thing to point out: the same researcher was the one who just in May discovered a, a vulnerability in 7-zip, um, which I know those of us that do malware research, uh, that's our favorite archive tool, and we pass around a lot of our samples using 7-zip. Mm -hmm. But a lot of us had been stuck on 7-zip 9.20, which had been out there since 2010. So if you are using 7-Zip, hopefully you've upgraded to 16.02, which is the one came out in May that doesn't have the vulnerabilities. Okay, good recommendation there. And uh, so, and, and some perhaps some good lessons to learn. And you know, Michael, there's no way, no better way to learn than to learn by example. Of course, probably, well, maybe the best way is to learn by listening to our parents. <laughs> but maybe the second best way is to learn by example. So I think you have a good example here. Yeah, so, so um, you know, we're, we're constantly trying to educate our, 
our workforce so that they're, mm -hmm. they have cyber sense, I've once called it, right? So <laughs> that they're sharp, they can spot stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have an internal team that's focused on it to do a great job. Uh, I saw something out there uh, just announced. Uh, it was a European antivirus company, uh, AVG, that kind of uh, explained this. And uh, someone went through a lot of effort to uh, teach people lessons. And um, they're, they're telling them, you know, watch where you go on the internet. Don't go to sketchy sites. And when they do, and when they get infected with this particular piece of malware, it does what a lot of the current um, uh, malware does that encrypts your files. Mm -hmm. uh, usually it's ransomware and you want them to pay to get the key. Mm -hmm. uh, this particular author of this piece of malware is just teaching them a lesson, but they follow that exact same, you know, path. And they say, okay, I've encrypted your files, you need a key, here's how you get the key. Mm -hmm. There's even kind of a little gaming where they, they hide a text file on their machine and tell them to go find it. Um, <laughs> when the story broke, it actually had the key in the story. So <laughs> if you don't find it, you yeah. have that option as yeah. well. Uh, but I was fascinated that uh, someone would go through that much trouble mm -hmm. to teach a lesson. And I think it probably crosses a few lines, too, in the average teaching model that we would have. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think I was going to bring it up as a word of caution that if you're going to go through some sort of an exercise, be careful how potentially disruptive it could be to somebody, you know, meeting a deadline or, you know, doing something that might really have some business critical application and, you know, could get, uh, could get some uh, you know, folks a little bit rattled. You don't want to be rattling people. You really want to be just teaching the lesson and make it a positive experience as much as possible. Right? right. It's conceivable that if everyone who was affected by this counted up their hours of labor and went after you, it could be a pretty yeah. big suit against the person who's teaching in this case. Yeah. It also uh, made me think back, to, way back to the uh, 2003 Nazi worm, where someone said, you know, I'm going to do everybody on the internet a favor. I'm going to write a worm that gets rid of the last big worm, which was Blaster, mm -hmm. and then patches their Microsoft system. Mm -hmm. And what happened, I think, in a lot of networks was if all the systems try to patch at the same time, you have link saturation and a lot yeah. of issues and downtime. So you have to be very careful about just deciding to uh, do things across mm -hmm. the internet to other people's machines, and it can cause all kinds of issues. Yeah, absolutely true. I think, it, you know, we've theorized that the Nazi worm was in fact an intent to go and repair things, and uh, I think fundamentally it just had a bug in it. And uh, I, I think it had to, to do with the way it did address scanning, and it was, uh, it went beyond where it was supposed to do, and it was also, it also started sort of at the same place each time, and so it created a whole lot of network noise um, that was far and above what Blasterworm created in terms of network noise, and uh, it eventually did expire itself, so that was a good, kind of a good thing, but that's, again, I think one of the hazards is the deeper you go into teaching by example, you know, if there were some sort of a bug in this and this example that caused, you know, in certain circumstances, it wouldn't be able to decrypt or something, and you, oh, then what do you do? <laughs> so it, there are some hazards associated with it, and you really need to be pretty careful about it. And, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier, I think um, the only other real example, that, I mean, kind of going back on the Nachi, I'm only aware of really one other example, and I've forgotten the name of the botnet, but it was one where I think it was intended to, uh, it, it was actually publicized, that they're trying to go out and capture, you know, like these IoT devices that are vulnerable and they're getting recruited into botnets and just kind of, I wouldn't say hold them hostage, but hold them, you know, protect them from getting infected by other 
botnets. But the problem is with a lot of these devices, you turn it off and it resets back into its vulnerable state. And so I think what we're starting to see is kind of a race. That is, can the bad guys get to the newly vulnerable device before the good guys are trying to protect it? So I haven't seen any evidence that that, you know, that protective botnet has been particularly effective. But, uh, you know, it, it is another sort of potential avenue here. So very interesting story. I think, uh, you know, educational tools are, are an important part of our repertoire of what we do for security. Absolutely. So uh, with this one, I, uh, you know, I'm always up for a cool idea. <laughs> I, I can't help but say this, Jim, but, um, you know, in fact, covert channels actually are kind of a little bit of a, I, I can't say that I've studied it a lot, but it's a little bit of a passion to me because I think it is really, it, you tend to run into some really cool uh, concepts and things that you really force you to think outside the box. So uh, tell us how you can get data outside the box here. Yeah, well, this one, uh, I I first uh, came across the, an article uh, on Sophos's Naked Security blog, but then I went and uh, got the paper from um, some researchers in Israel from Ben Gurion University. Mm -hmm. This one was kind of interesting. They they described what they call fansmitter as a way of uh, exfiltrating data from air-gapped computers by playing with the speed of the fan. Mm -hmm. Since fans in most modern computers are controllable by the, the computer itself. Anybody who's ever had a desktop computer or a laptop with a fan in it knows when it gets hot and the fan speeds up, there's a noticeable difference in the way it sounds. Mm -hmm. And so these guys developed what they called SMC kit, which could tweak the, the speed of the fans to exfiltrate data. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not very quick. <laughs> uh, they were talking about something on the order of 15 bits per minute that could be transmitted. So this isn't going to uh, be something that you're going to use to exfiltrate a large database with credit card numbers in it or anything. But um, it, was, it was an interesting idea. And uh, mm -hmm. the, the paper itself goes into a, a lot more technical detail um, but yeah, you know, one of the in the in the Sophos blog, one of their uh, concluding comments was, "If you're worried about your fans being used as a secret signaling system, consider buying a fanless computer like mm -hmm. a 12 inch MacBook." <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I try to uh, I, I, I try to encourage my kids to pay attention to everything. And, you know, this, it, it, this is particularly, particularly true, I think, when you start learning to drive and, and perhaps even before you learn to drive because it's even better is, you know, recognize what a car should sound like. Recognize any changes. Is there a new squeak? Is there a new rattle? Those are signs of things that you should be paying attention to. I think if you hear your fan speeding up and slowing down all the time, that should be something you should be paying attention to. It usually means your hard drive is going to go, right? <laughs> yeah, it usually means your hard drive is about ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this, uh, I, I can't imagine that this could potentially be, you know, sending any reasonable amount of data and you not really kind of notice that this fan, fan's speeding up and slowing down. But I think perhaps back to the point, you know, I, I'll date myself for a moment. Um, we used to talk about covert channels in the context of mainframe computers. 
and you know you want to be able to separate between accounts. It was a you know the user accounts, but uh, I guess one of the potential vulnerable points is that only one user could access the tape drive at a time. So if you could get some, you know, use a signal that is to take control of the tape drive and then have another sort of covert thing that could see if the tape drive had been taken, and you could use that as a covert channel, you know, release and take and release and take. So that was another example of a covert channel. And, you know, there's so many opportunities for covert channels now, it's almost unfathomable how, how many there are. And I think it's a very important, you know, sort of concept to keep in mind that when we look at systems to consider what covert channels can exist. So, for example, you know, we tend to think of a firewall as a means to be able to control access in or out of the network. But if you can simply use some kind of a, you know, a resource control to be able to leave a signal that it doesn't have to actually go through, you can do some things like that. So I think that's one of the things that's, uh, you know, kind of something to keep in the back of your mind, designing systems or considering what, uh, what potential channels might exist just to uh, make sure that we're not being presumptuous about the security of a system. Yeah, well, we've, and we've heard recently about advertisers trying to use cell phones to listen to, you know, inaudible signals so they can gather data on, you know, what ads folks are watching on TVs that aren't necessarily connected. Mm -hmm. You know, this just seems to be another step in, in that kind of a thing. Right, using yep. the camera on your monitor and turning it around on you, all those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. absolutely. So, all right, very good. You know, very much a theoretical discussion, but I think it's, uh, it's one that uh, really I think is, is um, good for thought and, and considering how, how systems could be abused in ways that we hadn't otherwise imagined. So, Joe, I guess perhaps on a little bit more of a conventional breach story yeah. here. So, um, you know, the LinkedIn breach is, it's, it's kind of old in two different ways. The, the press on it came out in May and the uh, original attack was actually in 2012, but just this week the researchers at CoreLogic actually published some statistics that they were able to do after crunching some compute on the, the hashed information that was released. So, you know, this is, is something that happened previously. But to give the backstory on it, in May, a hacker tried to sell the full list of LinkedIn breached information, and it came out to about 117 million usernames and passwords. Mm -hmm. And the hackers were trying to sell it on the dark web for five Bitcoin, which comes out to about $2,200. And at that point, that's when LinkedIn started taking it seriously that they, they kind of underestimated how many how many passwords and usernames mm -hmm. they, they admitted to losing. So they, they recognized it, and then eventually they sort of re-emailed their users and said, you really should change your passwords. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the folks at CoreLogic, they cracked 65% of the full list in two hours. They found it to be about 164 million unique email addresses and 177 million passwords, which is interesting because they don't match. Mm -hmm. So that does tell me that the folks at LinkedIn at least probably did have these separately stored separately. So you would have to do a little bit of uh, engineering to match the two. But I'm sure you know that's that's something that uh, a good hacker community can can do. Mm -hmm. um, passwords were encrypted with SHA one, and they had no salt, which is random digits attached to the 
end of the hashes, so they're not stored in that well encrypted. They're obscured. Yeah, right. That's, right. that's probably a better term for it. And a few interesting stats that, you know, not so, some of it's not surprising. The top passwords were one, two, three, four, five, six, mm -hmm. LinkedIn, and password. Not quite as creative as what we saw with the Dolly Madison information, but, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of predictable. Yeah. Um, the top email domains were Gmail and Hotmail. Um, I thought it was interesting that 48% of the passwords were all, uh, were lowercase with one number, mm. which you wouldn't think at least, you know, it, it, maybe it does show a little progress in people's passwords. Uh, also, more passwords were eight characters or more than were seven or fewer. So it maybe does show a trend towards longer passwords and mm -hmm. slightly more complex passwords. Uh, although only 1% of passwords had all of uppercase, lowercase, a number, and a special character. So um, not, not great password strength, but probably not as weak as we would have seen mm -hmm. you know, a few years ago. Um, and then standard lessons here. Don't store your passwords insecurely if you're some a website or a big provider that has the need to, uh, you know, have users with passwords. I would say, if possible, don't store them at all. Mm -hmm. You know, keep let users be responsible for their passwords. And then on the user end, don't reuse your passwords because, you know, anything that you had that was lost in LinkedIn, if you use that for your bank account or your, um, you know, any sort of critical other information, now you have to be worried about that. So, mm -hmm. and absolutely. And I'm reminded about something Michael said in last week's show is, is just expect this to be the norm. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, you know, people's sort of tolerance for this is, is gone up. You know, nobody's shocked that, you know, millions of passwords are lost anymore. And, yeah. and it's sort of become the expectation. So, you know, that's just the, unfortunately that people are a lot more accepting of this than probably we would like. Mm -hmm. So. So on this one, uh, I'll, I'll work backwards. Uh, your uh, your point about uh, don't use re reuse passwords. I think that's there's been a whole flurry of notifications that have been going out from other organizations, uh, basically indicating that they're seeing password reuse being used to victimize their accounts. And so uh, I don't know if it's from this data or from other sources of data or just a combination of all those things. But there have been a number of organizations that have made those notifications really, uh, lately. And so uh, it is certainly something to pay attention to, it is to try to have uniqueness between systems. And it, you know, the only way that I've found really to, as a practical means, you have to have some way to keep track of your user accounts on the various systems and things like that and, uh, and control those things. Uh, I guess the next um, topic uh, that I'd like to consider in cases like this is what do you have at risk if your LinkedIn password in this particular case were to be stolen, you know, somebody gains access to your account. You know, the way I tend to look at it is if you're on a, you know, a, basically a social media site, anything you put on there about yourself is basically public domain information at that point. Right. So it's not as if you're losing information. I think the real risk is, as you mentioned, the password reuse issue that is, can information about your account here be used to gain access to something else? Um, and then the, uh, the second aspect that I tend to think of it is how could your account be used to try to victimize others? Can, they be used, can somebody else be social engineered through uh, you know, what appears to be a legitimate message from you to right. share some piece of information that might be able to 
make a victim out of those folks. And I think it, it's or, really or potentially, you know, the association of your of your you with your employer. Mm -hmm. Potentially, we're looking at targeted, you know, targeted phishing or targeted yeah, but, social yeah. engineering because of uh, that level of information being. That's out true. There. Anything you put in the public domain. Yeah. yeah. The observation for me was that uh, we're telling people not to reuse passwords, and clearly the people who used LinkedIn for their LinkedIn password don't use that as their password everywhere else. I'm guessing they use Facebook for their we're, Facebook password. We're not positive password. about that, but that's, you're, you, that is a pretty good conclusion to come to. And I would say the worst place to use LinkedIn for your password is LinkedIn. <laughs> so you should use yeah. LinkedIn for your password on Facebook and Facebook for your password on LinkedIn. <laughs> that's probably not a good idea. No? <laughs> but it's not as bad as using LinkedIn as your LinkedIn password. Yeah. Or the guy who uses just password everywhere. Exactly. Yeah, that's probably not so good. That's probably a bad choice. <laughs> go ahead, Jim. Well, it's it's probably time for me to go take a look at the passwords we've been seeing in our honeypots again. So maybe mm -hmm. sometime in the next couple of weeks I'll do that on the show again. But the, you know, a couple of the other things that struck me there, storing the passwords with not salting the hashes, and using SHA-1, if you're mm -hmm. going to use, you know, use something that is computationally more expensive so that you can slow down the, you know, the password cracking. Use something like PBKDF2 or, mm -hmm. or something that's specifically designed for passwords mm -hmm. that causes the, anybody who's trying to crack them to have to expend a lot more computational resources on it than, than something like SHA-1. That's a good point, Jim. You know, uh, I think perhaps lost on, in fact, I, I, I can't remember the last time I really had uh, had any conversation about this, but, you know, for for cryptographic algorithms, hashes as well as cryptographic, you know, encryption algorithms, the tendency is to think about how little computation you can do to be able to accomplish it so you can do it very quickly under normal circumstances. But this is, in fact, an example where, Entering passwords is a relatively infrequent function and it happens at human speed. You don't need computer speed to do password validation. And so to have an expensive computation function for password validation is actually a very good thing because in the case where they're trying to crack it, they're trying to guess piles of different passwords against that computation. You just want to at least make it aggravating at the very least, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'll take that as an agreement. It's a little, it's a little hard to see your Sorry, nod. Sorry, you couldn't see me nodding. <laughs> All right, very good. So uh, we'll, we'll go to the next story here. And this was one I just couldn't help but cover. Um, you know, the headline here is large CCTV botnet leveraged in DDoS attacks. This is a blog from uh, security.net. This actually got a lot of uh, basically repeat press. I saw in uh, something, I think, in Network World. I saw some, uh, anyway, there, there were a number of other uh, uh, organizations that basically reposted this in a variety of ways. So just to sort of summarize the article as they described it, first of all, you know, this is an organization that does uh, mitigation of denial of service attacks. And, uh, but this, what raised their uh, attention to this one was the intensity and the duration of the attack. That is, it continued for hours and then actually turned into days that this attack basically took on. And um, the, uh, the intensity here, they were looking at basically what was described as a layer seven attack, um, which has a lot of sort of nuances or definitions. In particular, it was an HTTP flood. Typically, that's a case where somebody is sending a request to a website and expecting a response from it. What they're trying to do is send a request 
that is expensive for the website to basically respond to. So what they'll tend to do is maybe look for a big, huge document that you know to download and uh, send the request to the, the site. And you know they they don't really care that they actually get the document, but they're going to ask for it over and over and over again, things like that. And the other little trick that apparently they were doing in this case is what they call caching bypass, which is a, a case where they put a little nuanced change into the request each time so that if you are doing caching, if you have basically a content distribution service, it forces that content distribution service to go back to the origination point and find out uh, and, and basically ask the origination point for the data. Nevertheless, in this case, they were generating close to 35,000 HTTP requests for, per second. And then once they started doing mitigation work, it increased to almost 50,000 HTTP requests per second. Now, that's fairly typical. Uh, you know, the attacker is going to send some resources at a, at, at a, uh, at a target. They're going to see if it's effective. And then if it turns out to be not effective, what are they going to do? They're going to try to send some more resources if the, at the attack if they can. So uh, that's not a really surprising aspect of this. Although, um, you know, certainly uh, 50,000 HTTP requests per second is a, uh, you know, it's a formidable number of requests. Now, if you were to try to look at this, now, one of the things that they pointed out in this article is that there were a total of about 25,513 unique IP addresses that they, you know, basically uh, identified in a couple of hours of the attack activity. That's a pretty significant number. But then if you divide that across the 50,000 requests per second, that's only like one or two requests per source per second. So it doesn't sound like they're really necessarily, you know, each of those sources were working all that particularly hard. So just an observation in the, uh, uh, the data that was uh, provided there. Uh, but was, uh, you know, kind of caught my interest in particular was it leveraged only CCTV cameras. Now, this is closed circuit television cameras, devices, DVRs. Uh, as a part of the attack activity. And so they talked a little bit about, I guess they uh, did some probing to be able to see that these uh, devices and what types of devices were used here. And we'll show that in a, in a graphic in a moment here. And then they also sort of speculated incorrectly, incorrectly in my opinion, about what exploit was used against these devices. I think um, uh, there was some sort of a vulnerability that was uh, described. I think it's fundamentally that a lot of these devices, most of these devices have Telnet exposed to the internet and they have default passwords on them that, uh, that have been used. And so we've been reporting on this over and over again that these devices are getting um, scanned for and compromised. So, uh, you know, some advice from the author here. Uh, if you have an online camera or you're a vendor of online cameras, you know, make sure that devices are fully patched and isolated from the internet. I recommend not exposing Telnet to the internet and uh, don't have a default password that's, you know, like uh, default across all devices. Uh, you know, more modern devices, better protected devices have a perhaps a, a password that's unique to the device and it's printed in the, uh, on the label or something like that, uh, much like a serial number is. And then uh, any device that does have internet access, uh, make sure that they're locked down. Uh, that includes, uh, you know, DNS resolvers, NTP resolvers, and that, or servers and that sort of thing. So nevertheless, the, uh, the types of devices that they saw here, and based on the signatures they saw, was first and foremost the thing that, you know, was identified as the H264 DVR, H264 being the, basically the ISO standard for the encoding format. And then uh, there were some others that really kind of identified some brand names associated with it. A lot of these devices have very similar characteristics in terms of their form and function. So I just took a chance or an, an opportunity to, to query on Shodan. 
Uh, if you're not already familiar with Shodan, it is uh, basically a service that you can go to to see uh, what types of devices are on the internet. It's uh, really designed to uh, kind of sort of take an inventory of the internet. So I queried for H264 DVR, basically found a uh, country distribution of devices in the order of about 100,000 in Brazil, Vietnam, Taiwan. Not surprisingly, some of these countries showed up in the list of countries that were source of the attack activity that were described in that article. So um, very consistent with that. So I'm gonna use that as basically the segue into our internet weather report. And then, uh, you know, first and foremost, on the top most probe ports, uh, we see port 23 TCP. Again, these are the security surveillance camera DVRs. I'll go off on a tangent for a minute. <laughs> I happen to notice in some of the, uh, the commentary for this article, there was scrutiny about whether these were actually closed circuit televisions because they're connected to the internet. That means not closer. Open. Yeah, so open. <laughs> I, I, I think the, the CCTV is actually kind of referring to between the DVR box itself and the cameras, right. it's closed circuit. There are coaxes that go out to those cameras. Um, but nevertheless, the DVR itself is actually connected to the internet so that you can view the cameras from the internet or manipulate it, things like that. And uh, unfortunately, in this case, be able to exploit those as well. But uh, kind of back to the point, Top of the list, uh, port 23 TCP, a lot of scanning activity there. We're going to take a closer look at that, followed by port 22 TCP, that's SSH. Uh, we'll take a look at that one as well. Not as exciting. Third one, 53413 UDP, that's that backdoor for Netis brand home routers. Some activity there, but it is curbing off, and so uh, that's an encouraging sign perhaps. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. Other ports that are showing up here, 443 TCP, 80 TCP, no surprises there. 3389 TCP, uh, all of those are fairly stable in terms of the amount of activity that we're seeing. 3389 being remote desktop protocol, followed by 445 TCP. 465 TCP, that's actually research activity uh, looking for SMTP servers. That happens to be the port for uh, SSL encrypted SMTP servers. And then 53 UDP and 123 UDP, that's uh, DNS and NTP scanning activity um, to the point earlier, those get used in reflective denial of service attacks. And so uh, we wanna make sure those, those get locked down. Looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to use the word that you described earlier, Jim. I'm going to just say here this is, a, this is a bordering on ridiculous, or actually perhaps beyond ridiculous. I think at 50% we hit ridiculous. Nevertheless, we're just a little short of 75% of the sources that are doing scanning activity showing up in port 23 TCP. By the way, just to put it in real numbers here, in our data, that's nearly 810,000 unique source addresses that we saw through the course of the day on June 28th. And uh, you can see, uh, relatively speaking, the distribution of the other sources that are doing that scanning activity. Next in line being 445 TCP, that is uh, latent conficker infections that are out there on the internet. The 53413, 80 TCP, and then there are a couple of others that are associated with peer-to-peer -peer activity that tend to show up in the data. And then last but not least there, uh, 4028 TCP. I don't recall specifically what that is, but that happens to be, uh, uh, I'll call it innocuous research activity that's taking place. So looking at the uh, activity over the last 180 days for port 23 TCP, top graph is showing the number of probes. We're not at the peak of what we've seen, but uh, in terms of the number of probes, we're still up very high. 
approaching on the order of a billion probes per hour in the data that we're showing, that is only showing a, basically a proportion, a portion of, uh, of, of the uh, total network traffic. So there's actually many multiples that are actually taking place beyond that. And then in terms of the number of sources that are scanning, just a little off the peak there, but over the last couple of weeks, it really has been the highest that we have ever seen in a given hour in the 300,000 unique sources range in a given hour. So Brian, so like John Hogeboom mentioned on the last week's show that a lot of times we'll see the, the trend in activity before something will come out in the, in the community, in the news. Do you think this is the type of change in activity that will result in some sort of announcement you know, in the future sometime or? Well, I think the, the word is out. I mean, there's no question that the word is out. The question becomes what is actually going to be able to be done about this. And I okay. think that's one of the things that uh, any organization that's aware of this is kind of struggling with right now. Ultimately, um, there really is no easy fix for this. Uh, generally speaking, the folks that are purchasing these things, they don't realize that they're computers. They don't think about them as computers. They're not thinking about patching them as computers. They don't realize that Telnet expose, is exposed to the internet. And even if you kind of call them up and notify them, they're kind of, well, what am I supposed to do about it? And really the recommendation that I would tend to have is take that device and throw it in the trash and get one that's got more quality attributes. But there isn't really even a certification program that exists today to say this one is secure and that one's not. And so it really requires that the individuals, and these are folks that are running a, you know, like a convenience store or something, wow. uh, or they just happen to have a home that they're, they're trying to protect. It, it's a very difficult uh, situation, in my opinion, to really resolve. So do you think as IoT gets more and more prevalent, we'll just see more and more percentage of this 23 scanning? Well, there are some activities to try to get better at this, yeah. but uh, this particular problem isn't so, going away anytime soon, yeah, near as I can tell. We all need to have our thinking caps on about how to, yeah. how to really take care of this. Similar situation in port 22 TCP, which is not nearly as significant, but there are certainly devices that are out there that are, uh, you know, it's brute force password guessing activities, looking for default passwords and systems and uh, being able to gain access to it. This has been relatively stable, although over the last you know, couple few weeks here, we did see an increase in the number of sources that are doing that scanning. It has not had a significant impact on the number of probes that are taking place. Those additional sources are doing it kind of low and slow, but nevertheless, over time, uh, they have the opportunity to uh, basically scan the entire internet and find all those devices. And uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, I showed a similar graph to this one. This is basically the geographic distribution of those sources doing the port 22 scanning. If you were to you know, take a picture, a satellite picture of the Earth and look where the lights are, it probably would look a lot like this. And so I think it's just uh, you know, relatively even distribution. And uh, you know, the one we showed a couple of weeks ago was almost exactly the same, except it had about 500 less sources. So it's grown a little bit, uh, but it's uh, basically the same distribution. I still want to know what those sources are out in the middle of the Indian Ocean. <laughs> yeah, we were speculating about that. I don't know if that's just an error in the geographic mapping or if uh, there, in fact, are a little itsy-bitsy islands or somebody in a canoe. You never know. Next item, scan probes and sources on port 53413 UDP. Basically, we see uh, basically a surge over the last few days in the number of probes, and these are technically not probes. They're really just, uh, you know, scripts are getting, that are getting tossed out on this port targeting Netis brand routers, which uh, happen to have a backdoor on this port that allow you to you know, throw a script at it and it, it'll execute it if you hit it. 
the number of sources has actually gone down, whereas the number of probes has gone up. Now, you know, I could speculate about what that really means. That is, uh, generally speaking, the number of probes basically indicates that there's recruiting activity going on. The a decrease in the number of sources, perhaps somebody fixed something and it caused a decrease in the number of sources. We're just really looking at, you know, in the bottom corner here where it's gone down a little bit. In fact, over the last uh, couple of weeks, it's gone down a little bit here. That may be that something got uh, blocked and, you know, maybe somebody blocked this port and uh, they no longer could access to those devices and so they're uh, upping their recruiting activities a little bit. So a little unclear what's going on. Nevertheless, if you have one of those devices, you're going to want to lock it down. So that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's on YouTube, as well as an audio podcast on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attbusiness. We'd like to thank you, Jim Clausing, for joining us today. Thank you, Joe Harton. Thank you, Michael Singer. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.